1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us again. I just spoke with Eugene Park about his book, A Family of No Prominence, The Descendants of Pak Tokwa and the Birth of Modern Korea. This came out in 2014 with Stanford University Press. Now, the book works simultaneously on a number of different levels. It's the exploration of a particular family, a particular descent line. It's an exploration of the larger social, political, and cultural contexts within which that descent line emerged and wrote its own history and either kept or not the kind of documentation that allows us to write that history. And it's also um, at a kind of broader level, a study of the possibilities of writing genealogies and the possibilities of writing with genealogical history as well. So the book focuses in on this particular family, um, in part because of its relationship with the author. And Jean talks about that relationship both in the book and in the course of our conversation in, I think, really, really interesting ways. The chapters each, um, along the lines that I've just described, work on uh, a number of different levels as well. So each chapter looks at the history of the status group that the Pak family was part of, this Cheongyin status group, and situates the Paks within that um, history of the status group and then situates both of them within a larger history of the kind of um, continual modernizing of Korea at the same time. So it's a really interesting story. It's full of lots of vignettes and anecdotes that only we only scratch the surface of in the course of our conversation. So I urge you um, to look at that. I mean, it's stories of people um, who really like to drink getting hungover and then their sisters have to, you know, do their jobs for them the next day because they're too hungover to work. Also stories of really um, courageous individuals, stories of women, stories of men, fathers, daughters, um, in-laws. It's a really fascinating chapter in a history of family, as well as a history of historical genealogy. So it was really a pleasure to talk with Jean about it. And I hope you enjoy the conversation and have a chance to take a look at the book afterwards. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Eugene Park about his new book, A Family of No Prominence. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Gene, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. So Gene, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background and specifically what brought you to study and work on modern Korean history?
0: Hmm. Uh, did you mean personal background or academic background or both?
1: Well, whatever was responsible for bringing you to the decision to study modern Korean history as your chosen academic field.
0: Sure. Um, uh, I was born in South Korea so uh, I, my family and I moved to the United States uh, when I was 12. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the one word that I think best describes my identity as a Korean-American, or better yet, the so-called 1.5. Ever since my childhood, uh, even as a child, I was very much interested in history. Uh, That was definitely my favorite um, subject. Uh, uh, But but in in stark contrast from uh, many, uh, apparently many uh, East Asian families where the parents are the ones who seem to know a lot about history or family history, and they want to uh, talk about family history with their children. Uh, Our family was the opposite in that my parents uh, had little interest in history. And I think looking back, uh, uh, that thirst for information, the lack of information about our family um, uh, kept on uh, really uh, encouraged me to pursue history, eventually study history uh, as my college major. And uh, pursue graduate education, become a professional historian. Um, It's interesting that you also asked me what um, uh, uh, encouraged me to uh, study modern history. Actually, uh, it was not until about a few years ago that I thought I had uh, a real interest in modern era. Uh, What I mean by modern here is, uh, let's say, from late 19th century. On so until uh, um, more recently, um, I was comfortably grounded in uh, the chosun period from 1392 to although it ended in 1910. I would say uh, more like uh, the chosun period before the impact of Western um, imperialism and also uh, uh, even to this day, I have uh, an ongoing, long-standing interest in um, early, uh, the ancient faith period, the early Korea, early uh, the the ancient period, ancient history of uh, um, essentially all parts of the world. Uh, now I mentioned a moment ago that uh, fairly recently, a few years ago, I became interested in modern Korea, and uh, what happened was, and and that's when I that uh, this interest, the beginning point, more or less coincides with uh, uh, this particular book project, which began about uh, um, uh, about 10 years ago mm-hmm.
1: So this is actually relevant to, and, and this is really nicely um, a segue into my next question, and it's really relevant to the project. Um, and you, you talk a little bit about your own personal connection with the project in the book itself. So the book we're talking about today explores the history of a particular family, the nature of the status group that it's part of, and the kinds of genealogical concepts and sources that shape its history in the course of Korea's modernization, modernization, modernizing Korea's place in modern history. So um, you again, you talk a little bit in the book about what brought you to this topic, but can you um, talk for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book about how you came to work on this topic in particular, and, and how you came to decide to publish your work on this topic as a book-length object?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, again, uh, have always liked history, but well, of all kinds, uh, not just uh, macro level history, but also a family history, um, including genealogy. Uh, I suppose I am interested in how all things uh, connect, um, especially animals, most certainly including primates, including human beings. (laughs) And uh, 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 when I arrived at uh, Harvard University in 1991 for my graduate training, Uh, First of all, my uh, advisor, late uh, Ed Wagner, uh, had been working with uh, Korean genealogies, uh, Chokbo, for decades. And Harvard uh, Yenching Library had a sizable collection of uh, Korean genealogies. Uh, I was just, uh, um, uh, I considered myself enjoying the uh, paradise at the time. I remember just spending hours. In the sub basement of the Harbor Yenching Library, going through those uh, dusty, moldy, often moldy volumes of uh, old Korean jokbo. Um And uh, before long, um, I was able to uh, not only uh, trace uh, the ancestry, uh, ancestries of, of both my maternal grandfather and maternal uh, grandmother, but um, uh, I suppose in a court, in, in line with Western custom of more Western custom of tracing one's ancestry through various roots rather than just limiting oneself to patrilineal ancestry as do East Asians. Before long, I was, I ended up with, well, at least back then, perhaps a hundred of my ancestors, direct ancestors. Now it's more like 13,000. And yet, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I made no pro- progress whatsoever with my father's side, and the breakthrough came uh, only, and if I, I'm not sure if I had the year down, but the 2004, I believe, mm-hmm. when I finally found my paternal great grandfather in a, a military regiment record. I was absolutely convinced that it was it was the right person. And from that point on, uh, it was easy uh, uh, tracing uh, uh, the the researching on the history of uh, that side side of my family because uh, uh, people connected to him, people that he associated with, many individuals, uh, some of them actually are known uh, persons in historiography of uh, uh, Korea. But interestingly, as I mentioned in my prologue, a lot mo, uh, for most of these individuals, a standard reference is they have uh, little or, or if, if nothing to say about their uh, backgrounds.
1: Mm-hmm. And you actually mentioned, I think, in the book that this breakthrough happened on your birthday, right? yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really nice cosmic coincidence. <laughs> so your, the patrilineal family that you associate with is the family that you trace in the book. Um, and so there's this really interesting and really fascinating connection there. And we'll talk about that over the course of our conversation, I'm sure. So as you just mentioned, and you and you talk about this um, very early in the prologue, many modern Koreans are not terribly concerned with their ancestral genius. And so the book asks a couple of questions related to this. And I'll just use the phrasing in the book because I think it's much more elegant than I can (laughs) reproduce. So the book asks, how did so many Korean families lose the memory of their past? And also, um, as a related point, what does the series of changes in how families think about their past tell us about Korea's transition from a largely agrarian, rigidly status-bound society to a modernizing nation state to a Japanese colony to a land governed by an industrialized democracy in the South and a totalitarian regime in the North. And so that's a quote from the book, and I think it really nicely encapsulates the different levels at which this study works. And so you're focusing in on a particular family um, that sort of opens up into th- uh, a history of the status group it's part of, which opens up into a history of Korea, which opens up into a history of modernity. Um, so it's a really nice layering, and it goes all the way down to your own personal experience as well as a member of that um, patrilineal descent group as you talk about early in the book. Now, <coughs> the book explores these issues by looking at the story of this family in the context of its status as middle people or chongin. So because this status group is such an important part of the book, could you maybe start us off by talking about chongin? Um, What is the nature of this group and what do we need to understand about this group now in order to understand the kind of historical contribution you're making to the history of this group in the book?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in answer to that question, I may as well uh, quickly uh, just uh, survey the, uh, the status hierarchy of uh, late Chosen Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the top of the, the social pyramid, if you will, uh, was uh, of course a small percentage of the population, definitely no more than, say, 5%, as, as is true in any early modern Eurasian society. That is the hereditary aristocracy. Uh, there were various terms for uh, late Chosen aristocracy. One commonly used term in the Western language historiography is a uh, yangban, which literally means this, uh, the two officials or two lines or two orders of officials, namely civil and uh, military branches. Uh, and that was, the, whereas in early in the Koryo period, the term yangban had a more literal connotation, meaning of uh, civil and military officials. But definitely, certainly by the late Cholan period, uh, the term yangban had become synonymous with hereditary aristocracy the members of whom had the privileged, if not uh, um, uh, almost exclusive, access to the most meaningful um, uh, offices uh, offices in the government. And it was a status that one had to be born with. It was not something one could achieve through merit. Um, uh, just Since you're a sinologist, I may as well uh, mention that uh, uh, the character ideograph which pronounced the uh, Sa in Korean, sure in Chinese, as in literati uh, or the sajok, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the, uh, the family or the group of uh, literati. That's another commonly used term for yangban uh, for Korean history. Just below the aristocracy, yangban aristocracy was uh, the, the ne- uh, was the next to the chungin, the term which literally means uh, the middle people. Uh, the narrowest definition, the narrow definition of chungin, uh, refers to uh, various uh, technical specialists, uh, experts in um, different branches of uh, knowledge or fields, uh, um, such as uh, foreign languages, uh, mm-hmm. uh, medicine, uh, accounting, um, uh, uh, astronomy or astrology, depending on how you want to understand uh, pre-20th century science, um, and a range of other uh, disciplines. These are experts uh, who... Uh, were employed by the government and they uh, lived in the capital cities for generations and uh, uh, their family uh, members had uh, privileged, if not well, I, I should say exclusive um, access to such positions in the government. So that's a narrow definition, Chung-in. Whereas uh, the broadest de- definition, Chung-in would also include uh, under this rubric um illegitimate uh, children of uh, yangban aristocratic uh, parents uh, well that's fathers um, also uh, various uh, administrative uh, functionaries employed by central and the local government offices or yamen clerks if you will um, also uh, the regional elites of uh, northern Korea uh, the, 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 the reason uh, behind reason for including them in the Chungin category is that uh, regardless of uh, how well educated or wealthy uh, these uh, Northerners were, and some even uh, passed examinations and held offices, the aristocracy of the Central and Southern Korea refused to recognize uh, the Northern elite as uh, their social peer. Um, Although I should admit that that there is still some disagreement among scholars as to whether uh, whether or not uh, we can regard the northern elite as a yangban, and the yang and I'm I'm sorry, yes Mm -hmm. yangban. But going back to my definition, the Jungin still was a fairly small uh, status category, perhaps no more than 10-15% of the population, max, Uh, and then below them, of course, were uh, the commoners, uh, the uh, the the Bulk of whom, majority of whom, were um, uh, farmers. And uh, what makes uh, early modern Korea, late Joseon Korea, uh, unique compared to uh, Tokugawa Edo Japan and uh, Qing China is the existence of a chattel slavery. Uh, the unfree population um, uh, making up as large as as much as a 30 percent of the population until the late 18th century when, as the late economy became more commercialized, uh, the slave population began to uh, decline rapidly until uh, the government finally decided to do away with the system um, in 1894.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Now, you talk in the book about some of the ways that um, your understanding and treatment of chung differs from that of previous studies. and. and some of those ways are about um, you know, treating this cat, if I understood correctly and let me know if I'm not, but <laughs> treating this category as encompassing a greater variety of specialist families and also taking longer to take shape um, in modern Korea than was previously understood. And so this is part of how you're historicizing this group in a way that's, um, as I understand it, different from um, how previous scholars have done it. It's really interesting. So the, time frame of the book moves us from medieval and early modern contexts through recent modernity, and it focuses on the Miryung-Pak family, as we've talked about um, uh, just very briefly before. Now, during the period under consideration, the family's social status improves, and we see that happening, and they move from commoners to chung-yin. They do this through a very careful investment of their resources of various types, and we'll talk about that over the course of the conversation. Now, (coughs) one of the really interesting things happening in the prologue is that you talk about an apparent contradiction here right? It was, um, And that contradiction is um, this, and I'll kind of just sum it up. It was the increased success and the increased prominence of this family during the period of Korea's modernization that actually led to their exclusion from what you call modern Korea's hegemonic discourse on descent. So in the modern era, um, Yin and their descendants increasingly were kind of amb- ambivalent towards genealogies. And this is a change. And as such, this becomes not a very easy topic to study for for the historian. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about what it was for you to study this topic in terms of the sources, in terms of the kinds of materials that you explored and brought to bear in creating a history of this family specifically and of the Cheongyan in general. So mm-hmm. you mentioned um, the importance of written genealogies, or chokbol, early on in the text. So can you talk a little bit about those kinds of sources and um, their their importance or the kind of interesting things about them in terms of your study in this context?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, uh, extant sources, primary sources, uh, especially before the modern era, uh, over, uh, overwhelmingly uh, favor the elite, and uh, uh, early modern Korea, late children Korea is, a, is not exceptional in this regard. Um, and uh, I should also admit, also I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, is that uh, although I consider myself a professional historian, um, only after... I discovered uh who my patrilineal ancestors were, and also this uh learning process continues as I keep unearthing or discovering uh direct ancestors of an even lower social status. I realize that even a professional historian myself I am so accustomed to reading about and talking about uh famous individuals famous families that uh even without realizing, I assume uh, uh, that somehow my ancestors could have been one of them, or my fa- uh, ancestors, examination pastors, or government officials, or intellectuals, or whatnot. And uh, I think the one reason why someone like myself, at least initially 10 years ago, had that room for imagination, or if not wishful thinking, was that, uh, again, Uh, the blank slate, that is a lack of knowledge about the real ancestors. And this is true for uh, the most uh, uh, Koreans uh, um, uh, today. Um, Now, to comment on uh, written genealogies, um, just to help uh, our listeners uh, have a better sense of uh, how widespread or, or limited in, uh, the, 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 the the phenomenon of genealogy compilation is, uh, well, uh, contrary to common claims made and the uh, mainstream South Korean media that every Korean household has a set of a genealogy choppo, uh, the uh, my own uh, research and experience uh, suggests to me that less than uh, half perhaps no more than 30-40% of South Koreans can find themselves in uh, a written genealogy of uh, any edition. And among those who can, less than half of them actually belong there. Um, And uh, of course, so what this means is that uh, for uh, South Koreans today who can find themselves or their family members or their recent ancestors in a published or written genealogy, um, unless they are uh, of uh, true Yangban descent, the, most of the rest have simply uh, made their ways into their genealogy. They come from families that have descent lines that have made their ways into genealogies only in the last uh, perhaps uh, two, three hundred years. Uh, and uh, so where does uh, Jungin, um uh, fit in <laughs> to all this? Uh, well, uh, just like the Yangban, um, as of the mid or the late 19th century, Chungin uh, uh, had uh, kept their own genealogical records or genealogies. But as I argue in my book, especially toward the end, uh, once uh, the Chungin uh, in the late 19th, the early 20th century uh, began espousing, adopting, embracing uh, Western Institutions and ideas and also take pride in their stands as uh, um, As uh, uh, The enlightened uh, people in contrast to those who are backward Uh, majority of them uh, actually uh, Actually uh, turned their uh, majority of them um, Simply stopped participating in the old custom or the culture of a genealogy compilation, and this is precisely what makes it very difficult for one to um, conduct research on jung because it's very hard to connect uh, the jung of a late Chosan, uh period with uh, their modern-day, uh, modern-era descendants.
1: Mm-hmm. But connects them, um, you did actually in the course mm-hmm. of the book, um, in part through written or in part through interviews mm-hmm. and oral histories. So, can you talk a little bit about those as sources? Um, what were some of the most important contributions that those oral interviews? Made to the project, um, were there any particular challenges um, in that process, and/or were there any moments um, during the process of conducting these oral interviews that really stand out for you as transformative in terms of the way you were thinking about the project?
0: Yes, uh, uh, my oral interviews were um, absolutely uh, critical for my research, and in the end, what I could piece together, um, uh, the what. Immediately uh, comes up in my mind is, uh, uh, above all, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the difficulty, the fact that the most informants are interviewees. Uh, they're not going to be able to give you the kind of information that historians value, like uh, the, the exact names, uh, dates, uh, years, uh, places, um, uh, much of their memory. Is uh, built or has survived around the more general types of information, um, uh, I guess, without (laughs) degrading or uh, putting down women's so-called old wives' tale type of type of uh, information. Um, And uh, uh, secondly, uh, the kind that these these memories or details or the stories have survived uh, using. Uh, words uh um and conceptual categories that generally often do not match uh, the terms or the concepts that uh, that the historiography uses uh, so for example the term Jungin. um only after i had been talking to one of one, one particularly informative uh, interviewee uh, for a long time and i had pieced together a considerable amount of uh, information, uh, uh, bits of information, and uh, then she uh, just came uh, came out came from nowhere and says, "Yes, she she now remembers her mother uh, using uh, telling her and other her siblings that the yes word to uh, but it's not definitely not a term or a concept that the ordinary Koreans think about or talk about the uh, when they uh, when they." Um, Uh, write about or discuss uh, their own ancestry today. And also, perhaps a third point I could make about oral history is uh, that um, uh, when one is uh, lucky, then... uh, Okay. The best case scenario is when the bits and pieces, the pieces, the types of pieces of information that the informant gives, uh, one is able to check the written sources, primary sources, and uh, uh, verify who that particular person is or the place is. Uh, for example, um, uh, this is uh, this person is a member of uh, the Wu family uh, that my book um, highlights in chapter uh, five. Uh, the, um, ever since I was a child, I remember hearing uh, re- hearing stories about how this particular person, uh, Woo, uh, Kim Young. Well, I didn't know the name until I wrote this book. Uh, he was uh, married to my um, grand uh, paternal grandfather's uh, sister. Uh, he was uh, very wealthy. He uh, uh, had passed uh, well, they didn't say he passed the particular type of exam but everyone addressed him as a literary licentiate Wu, or Wu Jinza. Actually, Jinza is the same character as the Chinese term Jinxer presented scholar Jinza. Um, uh, so, um, so, okay, so at least I know his surname is Wu. Uh, he lived in the particular places. Uh, so, well, and uh, I know there's a, there's practically only one ancestral seat that goes with the surname Wu among those who produced uh, among those who passed uh, the examination during this particular type of examination during the Joseon period but it was not until this one informant uh, recalled that uh, that this uh, literary licentiate whose uh, father uh, was addressed by everyone or referred to by everyone as uh, the Korean term is the name of the court uh, office is a uh, uh, Um, which is a minor, largely honorary post, uh, meaning that the one uh, ostensibly meaning that the one is uh, uh, the the chamberlain of uh, the royal household, Wu Xijong. And that that did it. That was uh, the critical information that finally got to nail down who this literary licensee, who that is uh, my grandfather's grandfather's, uh, sister's uh, husband was. But I have to say that the such... uh, Lucky uh, uh, ideal matches are relatively rare, and <laughs> one works with the uh, both oral history and the written documents.
1: Great for any. Um Earlier career younger scholars whom or more advanced scholars who might be interested in starting to get into the um, production of oral histories as part of their work. Does any do you have any like major points of advice or things that you wish you would have known early on in the process that you learned um, as a, you know, in terms of trial or as a trial and error kind of process that you would pass along from your experience?
0: Um, of course, as soon as one Realize or decide that he or she is going to uh, study a particular uh, group of people, then uh, one one must really hurry to tap into the wisdom, the memory of uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the oldest member of that group. And uh, uh, one really strong regret I have is that uh, that um, uh, that I did not. Get to ask all these questions when my paternal grandmother was still alive. She was born in 1894. She passed away uh, in the early 80s. And uh, so I I remember her uh, well uh, since I lived in Korea at 12. uh, She would have, had she been around and had I, or had I asked uh, her questions back then. I'm sure this book will be much thicker, Uh, the the stories would be more interesting, Uh, perhaps even more pictures, as I would have had better ideas to where to go to track down some interesting illustrations or uh, photographs, but no. Uh, But on the other hand, I shouldn't be too harsh on myself, and that uh, um, as a kid, uh, yes, I was, I wanted to hear stories about our family, our ancestors, but... Uh, of course, I did not have the conceptual uh, preparation or the background or the tools to ask uh, these uh, questions to my grandmother, who was in her, uh, if I recall, her 80s at the time.
1: Of course. Thank you. So let's actually get into some of the chapters. Now we won't have there, there's um, even though you just mentioned that there would have been even more interesting stories. There already are a whole lot of really fascinating stories and images in here. We won't have time to get to all of them, but we can at least um, try to get to some of them and some of the highlights. So the first chapter considers the origins of the Pox, and also it also considers the origins of the Chongyin status group. Um, and it considers this as a historical problem as well as a historical um topic that you're researching. So can you maybe start off um by talking a little bit about the formation of Chungyin's status in this early context in in what way did it emerge as a status group, and what do we need to understand about that emergence um, as a fact and or a historiographical problem in order to understand what comes next?
0: Mm. <laughs> um, even. In the Goryeo period, as a Korea's uh, uh, medieval uh, period, uh, there was, as there certainly was a social stratum, people of a social status uh, lower than that of uh, the central aristocracy, but higher than that of the commoners and uh, uh, slaves. Uh, But uh, it was not until uh, the late Chosen period, um, uh, the uh, Korea's early modern era when we get the capital resident um, technical specialist uh, Chungin families that uh, uh, constituted a closed uh, uh, status group or category in the sense that uh, they married among themselves uh, for generations and they monopolized the technical positions uh, in the government. But not only that, okay, while they... Uh, complained about uh, and they were certainly bitter about uh, uh, their exclusion from more important powerful meaningful positions in central officialdom. They themselves also made sure that the people of a lower social status could not um, uh, threaten their uh, privileges uh, or positions from uh, below. And the one um, uh, the relevant uh, uh, fact that I um, uncovered in the process of, of my research uh, was that uh, uh, that in the same way the Yangban aristocratic uh, uh, families uh, uh, discriminated against the illegitimate children, uh, the Jungin themselves uh, did exactly the same. Um, in fact, as I uh, point out in my book, uh, my own... Uh, uh, and the line seems to be descended from uh, uh, an illegitimate son of uh, one of uh, son Aba chung And uh, this discovery uh, directly contradicts uh, my, uh, my graduate school advisor, late uh, Edward Wagner's uh, uh, speculative observ- observation at the time. And I remember him articulating this quite well. Uh, His uh, uh, observation that perhaps maybe because Jungian themselves suffer from the discriminatory treatment by the aristocracy, they themselves uh, uh, may have been uh, more flexible, more open-minded about the issue of uh, of uh, uh, illegitimacy. But uh, my own research, as well as uh, more recent studies by other scholars, that suggest that the Nao Chung'in certainly were not any better in that regard compared to Yangban.
1: Fascinating. So as we move from this very earliest period <coughs> further into the book... We move into a chapter that looks at Chongyun in general and the Pax in particular in the 18th century. Now, the 18th century was crucial, as you show here, for the history of the Pax, as it was this period in which they kind of uh, emerged from obscurity and establish their wealth, their social status. They relocate from what you call a sleepy rural locale to Seoul. And in part, they do this in terms or they do this by choosing marriage partners. Okay, So you talk about over the course of this chapter, um, the importance of the fact that it's based on a much greater body of historical documents than you had access to for this, you know, the very earliest stages in the first chapter, um, you also talk about the challenges as a historian in tracing descent lines through these documents. So can you perhaps talk a little bit about that? Um, for you in the context of the work being done in this chapter on the eighteenth century, what were some of the challenges for you in even you know tracing descent lines through the documents and um, what's you know maybe the most important element of that process for you?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the most obvious challenge was to find uh, additional information on the, the various individuals who appear in um, the Pug genealogy, but other than their birth year, death year, the gravesite location, uh, the surnames and ancestral seats of their wives, uh, and the names of their fathers-in-law, uh, it was a real challenge to find any additional information in other types of uh, um, sources. Uh, but as you, um, as you mentioned, and as my book uh, certainly uh, mentions as well, um, more and more information becomes uh, available as uh, I make my way through the 17th century, the 18th century. and by the beginning of the 19th century, then we have uh, we're looking at a uh, bona fide uh, Ching uh, specialist uh, uh, Chingin uh, family the second challenge or the, the difficulty for me was that uh, um, uh, of course there are, uh, one can find uh, persons multiple individuals with the same name from the same roughly the same time period uh, but then how do we know if, if it's the person that I am looking for and that that's where uh, we're uh, we have to consider uh much room for interpretation, if not even uh, if uh, if not educated guess or guesses or even speculation. Um, in some cases, uh, it was uh, the the match was uh, quite uh, obvious. Uh, there were too many matches in terms of the surname, the given name, uh, the, uh, the where the person lived. And uh, what the person should have been doing, or most likely would have been doing, uh, occupation-wise, and uh, uh, the uh, and uh, how he was related to someone, or his uh, types of individuals that he knew. So certain matches, some matches were uh, quite certain. I had uh, no room for doubt. Whereas uh, there were some that uh, I had to be uh, the matches that were uh, speculative in nature, including this one. Particular uh, um, uh, the, uh, the the member uh, Pak, who I believe um, uh, Chapter Four talks discusses the man who was a member of uh, the chosen Korea's uh, uh, the the mission to uh, Tsushima uh, in 1811. Uh, uh, mm-hmm.
1: So let's actually, um, well, let's get to him soon, Um, and let's get to that uh, chapter soon. First, though, um, I want to set the stage a little bit for that um, discussion of that chapter by talking about the chapter that comes before. This is chapter three, As a Middle People, Military Officers, Jurists, and Calligraphers. So this chapter looks at the elevation in status of the Pak family by the early 19th century and situates this within the broader context of Korea's increasing engagement with a kind of new world and new forms of imperialism. So in addition to military careers, which had dominated the descent line um, previous to this, in the 19th century, you show that members of the Pac family were also pursuing careers in other technical specialties Mm -hmm. and were marrying into families that were doing the same. And so those specialties included um, interpretation, um, some of them were physicians. Now, two really interesting elements of this story, though, emerge um, and wind up becoming increasingly Important later on, and that is their engagement with Catholicism on the one hand, and also with Enlightenment thought more generally. So, um, could you talk a little bit about the importance of those elements of this story, or really, you know, either one of them that you might be um, particularly interested in talking about?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh... The, uh, I think you meant uh, uh, Protestantism rather than Catholicism. Oh, right? sorry. Yes. I, I must have, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. No sure. problem. Yeah, Protestantism. And I'm sorry, what was the other one? There was um, one you more?
1: mentioned the importance of engagement with enlightenment thought.
0: Yes. Period. Sure. Um, it, in essence, uh, Protestantism uh, was a scene as a part of uh, the overall enlightenment, um, ideology, or thought Um Interestingly, the Korean intellectuals, Koreans who uh, talked about or who dealt with or were conscious about uh, the Enlightenment thoughts, uh, uh, left uh, the civilization part out of the name. Uh, unlike the Japanese, who spoke of a civilization in enlightenment. Mm-hmm. and enlightenment, uh, and the reason being here, the, here the reason being that in the case of Koreans, who at least initially were more measured. And the conservative uh, uh, vis-a-vis um, Western uh, ideas, uh, uh, they did not, they felt, they strongly believed that the civilization was not an issue here. That is, uh, uh, Korea traditionally was a full-fledged member of uh, the civilization or civilized world, the center of which happened to be China. So civilization was not a question here. But uh, but interestingly, enlightenment was an issue and a challenge in that, that there were certain Uh, uh, things, ideas and institutions that the Koreans could uh, learn about, uh, study and adopt from the West so as such um, uh, in in that context uh, uh, Jong-in the the northern elite uh, of Korea in particular welcomed uh, uh, Protestantism which also had uh, uh, had, uh, a psychological, I mean, the welcoming, espousing Protestantism, also had a psychological dimension to it, um, in the sense that uh, by the, after by by the Russo-Japanese War, as a way that the Japanese, uh, by 1904-1905, when Korea. Found itself in a um, helpless situation with uh, Japanese aggression, um, and eventually leading to Japanese annexation of Korea in 1910. Uh, such uh, progressive uh, Korean uh, Koreans uh, um, were drawn to Protestantism for psychological reasons, almost as if uh, that this new faith uh, was uh, could offer uh, atonement. For the sins of uh, their ancestors, uh, their various uh, wicked uh, practices and customs, um, and uh, this certainly was, uh, uh, I think, uh, the, the main reason why, if not the sole reason, uh, well, one of the, the, the one of the two reasons, the other one being uh, the attraction to enlightenment ideology itself, so the reason why uh, the Paktechik, uh, my own great grandfather, um, decided to be. Uh, decided to get baptized in nineteen 19- in nineteen oh five.
1: Thank you. So I'm um, looking back, and the um, the chapter does mention Cheung-Yin engagement with Catholicism in particular, right? Why is that distinction between um, why is it important? Maybe for so that I understand, also so that listeners understand mm-hmm. um, when they look at that chapter, for us to distinguish in this context between um, Cheung-Yin engagement with Catholicism and with Protestantism in particular, in terms of the um, the kind of story being told here.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, are you referring to <laughs> Uh, uh, there's one individual who was who is recognized today as the first uh, Korean Catholic martyr. Uh, are thinking, you
1: referring to him? Um, I'm thinking of, and you know, the, the details are like not important, but I'm thinking mm-hmm. of the discussion, uh, I think on page 50, you mentioned that some Chung yin turned to what constituted in that context radically new practices such as mm-hmm. Catholicism. Oh. No, no, no. I think this is interesting because um, I'm just raising it because it's Mm -hmm. part of um, the kind of work that the book does that's really, really interesting Mm -hmm. is to ask us to think about, you know, these larger distinctions and these larger issues and as they're coming into the society for the Mm -hmm. first time and how that's shaping the history of these status groups that had existed. And so if there's something that we can just maybe leave it. And if there's something that we need to understand um, about Mm -hmm. that distinction, um, we'll kind of of, you know you can mention it later.
0: Yeah good that I had uh, my book with me just in case and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the page. yeah I found the reference. Oh I see. Um, yes here I'm uh, talking about this part of the book discusses how um, uh, the late tools on in although they uh, many were wealthy, um, they had uh, uh, their uh, horizon intellectual, and the geographical horizon were wider than uh, many, if not most, the Yangban at the time, their um, opportunities, their positions in the power structure Mm -hmm. in the sense of a central officialdom uh, were limited. Uh, And uh, uh, in that context, uh, this part of the book is discussing how Catholicism, uh, which um, Korean visitors to China uh, were came to uh, came to learn about and study through their um, especially through their meetings with uh, Jesuits and other European missionary Europeans in China at the time uh, yes Catholicism was gaining a following in late Johan Korea and the Jungin a technical specialist that uh, constituted an important element among the growing number of Catholics at the time.
1: Awesome. So, you mentioned um, this sort of uh, incorporate the importance of the incorporation of the Chung Yin within these larger power structures, and I think that really beautifully takes us into Chapter Four, which really expands on this and looks at further transformations. It's a particularly fascinating chapter. So, this chapter kind of continues what's happening in Chapter Three by looking um, explicitly at the PUC's adjustment to the influence of Western ideas and institutions and practices prior to the takeover by the Japanese in 1905. Now you mentioned like none of the packs at this time were kind of prominent enough to have made it into previous histories of this period, but you're bringing us into a context in which they, um, the Chung yin actually become really interestingly significant. So you talk um, in particular about the involvement of specialist Chung yin in the building of the empire's new Western capital and the kind of impact of this upwardly mobile um, aspect of Yin's status at mm-hmm. this point in, on, um, the kinds of genealogies that were produced as a result. So this is super interesting from a historian's point of view, as well as a historiographical point of view. So could you talk about that or sort of whatever elements of this part of the story that you feel are most important and interesting?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, as, uh, us, you or some readers may sense, uh, um, I was most excited about writing this chapter. Um, I didn't used to be, uh, okay, before I uh, began working on this book project, uh, 1890s and 1900s uh, to me was uh, uh, constituted the tail end of the Chosen dynasty, a um, uh, depressing story. Um, I remember when I was a graduate student uh, late at, at Wagner at one point during our directed reading courses said this is a very frustrating period to to uh, read about for Korea. Um, and, and I certainly appreciated his uh, love and uh, special feeling that he had for Korea um, at the time. But uh, as I, as my research on this book continued, I was struck By how the 1890s and 1900s, more precisely, the period of uh, the Korean Empire, Imperial Korea, from 1897 to 1910. Well, I should say 1904, because uh, once the Russo-Japanese War broke out, uh, the Korea uh, was uh, in the the Japanese control under Japanese control. During that seven-year period, um, I think uh, the Koreans uh, of some specialized skills. Uh, and influence and wealth, such as the Pox, uh, uh found new opportunities. Um, they were being appreciated uh, by, appreciated and awarded by uh, uh, the imperial government, which, of course, uh, was a bent on building a modern nation state with uh, the uh, the wider uh, social For uh, support. I mean, after all, uh, one cannot build uh, a strong modern um, nation state without a population base a large population that understands what it means to be loyal citizens uh, or the subjects of a, a modern nation state in that sense the uh, education is important and also uh, once you have a patriotic uh, beautiful citizens and becomes uh, uh, i guess i suppose it's supposed to become easier for the central government to uh, recruit uh, its citizens uh, to uh, fight uh, in uh, a modern army, and if necessary, uh, give up, sacrifice their lives for the national uh, glory. Um, so this certainly was, uh, for me, as I was writing this chapter in particular, I, uh, I was quite excited. Um, and uh, I think the title, The long the Korean Empire, was definitely meant to convey uh, both, uh, both my enthusiasm as well as of what I believe must have been uh, the optimism and uh, the hopes and joys of uh, the pox and other uh, chung yin at the time. Um, I may as well mention at this point that uh, precisely for this reason, um, in the last 10 years, I've become uh, more interested in this uh, uh, period, and I think uh, when I uh, lecture or teach uh, Korea survey courses, uh, this is definitely my uh, uh, favorite period. And in fact, uh, I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to very soon offer a course uh, devoted to uh, this period, the Korea in the Age of Empires.
1: <laughs> Great. So, in this period, um, as you demonstrate here in this chapter kind of fabricated family histories became, as you put it here, invented traditions, right? And you talk about the implications of this for um, historical research. And we're going to see later on um, the kind of the implications of this longer term for how genealogies are treated and understood now as well. It's really interesting. So the chapter continues on with a chapter, chapter five that focuses in on this Wu family that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Right. So this sort of shifts our gaze from the packs to the in-laws of the packs. Mm-hmm. Why, um, can you, so in the, in a general sense, why was this shift important for the story that you're telling? And what are the most significant elements of this in-law story for you?
0: hmm Um, Ideally, uh, uh, the, the book should not have uh, devoted a whole chapter to the Wu's, but uh, the, 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 my reason for uh, doing so was more practical in the sense that uh, we know a lot more about them, mm-hmm. um, stories are far more interesting, and in many ways, uh, they, um, uh, uh, they uh, the family epitomizes uh, what uh, newly rising uh, chung Yin families, such as the uh, Park's, could uh, uh, achieve, um, in the best case, uh, a scenario. Uh, but, at, but at the same time, in, in addition, um, contrary to the conventional uh, the claim that the Chung-in uh, survived the transition and they uh, made adjustments and that they uh, prospered during the colonial period, uh, the woes were ruined. Uh, they just did not survive uh, the, the trans uh, the transition, um especially for financial reasons. And uh, uh, in the end, I decided that okay, uh, for a while the, the focus uh, is away from the parks, but uh, uh, the benefits of devoting a Devonian chapter to Uza outweigh the, uh, the 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 cons. Uh.
1: And some of them are really fascinating, right? One of them um, is involved in the killing of Queen Myung Song. I mean, there's some really fabulous um, stories that come yeah. out of this. That, that as, um, as a reader, I actually really loved that chapter in, in part because you really, um, this is one of the, actually several chapters in the book, where you're bringing um, these figures to life in these really fascinating ways. Um, and their interpersonal relationships become a really um, interesting part of the story. So after a chapter that turns to these in-laws, and again, um, some of them are really fascinating figures who just, you know, deserve stories of their own right, mm-hmm. we'd come back to the Pak family in Chapter 6. Now, at this point, the Pak's had connections with the aristocracy, with the palace, with the king. They have a big mansion in the city of Seoul, uh, or in, in urban Seoul. And you look here at the con- what happens to the Pucks, um in the context of colonial Korea, right? So, as colonial subjects of Imperial Japan, as the subtitle of the chapter indicates. Now, members of the Paks had really different responses to the colonial state. Some um, eagerly served it, some resented it, and many, as you put it um, in this chapter, were struggling simply to survive it. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk about this aspect of the story? What's um, most kind of important or significant about this particular context um, in terms of our understanding of the Pak family and of Chung? in general?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this, in many ways, uh, that chapter on colonial Korea is uh, um, perhaps the most uh, um, the chapter where my political agenda, if you will, is uh, more obvious in the sense that uh, I am engaging the kind of historiography uh, that uh, highlights you know, uh important people, uh, the uh, the resistance leaders, um, anti-Japanese and resistance activists, uh, intellectuals, and others uh, from 1910 to 1945. Um, in fact, uh, although it's, uh, it's gotten much better with uh, the mainstream historiography on that period, at least in the 70s and 80s for an ordinary Korean person uh, reading about that period, you would think that the right thing to do for a decent Korean person was to uh, actively resist the Japanese. Um, actually, I take it back. Uh, even today, um, uh, every year on March 1st, uh, there are all these uh, enactments uh, uh, with uh, the South Koreans dressed up, uh, wearing uh, the, the, the Korean. Dresses from that period, even some uh, some dressed up as a uh, Japanese uh, uh, colonial police officers. But now these Koreans are waving their flags. Uh, they are demonstrating against the colonial authority. Koreans are demanding independence. And uh, one would think that uh, that was what every Korean, or if, or at least a majority of Koreans did on March 1st in 1919. But I, what I find interesting is that, that when you actually when uh, when when you actually ask uh, Koreans, almost nobody has any recollection or memory of a, such a figure from one's family, including my own family. Um, so what this chapter, what I wanted to do with this chapter, uh, was to uh, emphasize again that um, most people just went on with their lives. Um, and uh, in in order to do that uh, I also try to find meaning in the seemingly um, uninteresting details of uh, ordinary pox uh by talking about for example um the uh, the uh the the ex- ex- experiences of uh, the younger pop girls attending school, what for example, the shinto uh worship meant for them or or adopting Japanese-style surnames, and also the meaning of a Christianity for uh, a member of the old, older generation, such as a shik uh, uh, toward the end of his life, uh, uh, after he has seen it all, heard it all, uh, before leaving, uh, fleeing Sowder. Um, uh, so that I meant these uh, stories, vignettes, uh, the term I use, uh, to be the main focus of the story. Although I do, of course, I do uh, acknowledge. Uh, more um, uh, interesting, if you will, uh, the, the experiences of uh, the pox uh, who rose uh, high in the colonial bureaucracy, such as this one uh, police chief. Uh, the, but uh, I try very hard to uh, make it clear to the reader that uh, those are uh, special cases rather than they're the ones who deserve to be um, uh, to be the, uh, the main focus.
1: Great, Thank you so much, Jean. Now, as we move to the epilogue, Um, we move into developments after 1945. And you talk here about the attitudes of the descendants of the Pucks toward genealogy compilation. So can you maybe kind of bring um, the the substantive discussion of the book um, to a close by talking about some of those attitudes? um, What really stands out for you in contemporary descendants' attitudes toward genealogy compilation? Of those attitudes and practices for yeah, historical yeah. research?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the, <laughs> um, to be blunt, uh, I'm very pessimistic that what my book is advocating, that is, uh, historians in particular, but the ordinary Koreans taking more interest in what well, i the real history of uh, their ancestors, the recent ancestors. Um, Uh, the awareness uh, uh, spreads. Um, It's hard for me to imagine that um, happening. And uh, the time is actually uh, uh, not on uh, my side in that sense because uh, further we're separated from... The uh, what happened before 1900, the uh, memories are are being lost, and also uh, the quality of uh, history education in general in South Korea is has reached a, a low point, with uh, the younger generation South Koreans are knowing far less about their history, uh, taught far less than uh, the older generations, uh, well, including myself, were taught. But still, um, I wanted to use uh, chapter six to. Um, uh, to argue, uh, to first of all point out that uh, um, these are memory blackouts and the imagined uh, um, histories, um, especially at the family levels and also the the historiography of Korean historiography, history uh, history writings on Korea that continue to um, uh, 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 highlight and uh, focus on uh, the famous people uh, it just certainly is not uh, helpful uh, uh, for us to uh, achieve a better understanding, more nuanced, uh, more multidimensional understanding of, uh, uh, of Korea's past. And uh, my, uh, my overall argument is that in the end, uh, the challenge or problem at hand is about the human agency when it comes to uh, historiography.
1: Great. So, Jean, thank you so much for making the time. It's a really fascinating study on many levels, as I'm sure um, is really clear just from this um, hour-long conversation. And um, there's a lot though that we didn't have a chance to talk about. There's a lot of really detailed, um, very fine-grained analysis of these genealogies. There's a lot of material in the book that rewards reading after listeners have a chance to listen to this conversation. Given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention um, about the book that we didn't have? A chance to cover.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, no, I cannot think of any um, at the moment. Uh, the although um, it's, it's somewhat related to the kind of uh, answer that you may have in mind, that is that this book. Um, got me certainly helped me uh, think about a, a new project which in some way in, in some ways is similar but uh, uh that the 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 covers time uh, coverage span uh time-wise and the approaches are are quite different.
1: <laughs> That's great so I was just going to ask you what you're mm-hmm. working on next so yeah would you mind talking to us about that a little bit?
0: Yeah sure um uh, my third book monograph project uh, looks at examines uh Uh, the descendants of the Goryeo dynasty, the Wangs, uh, to be more precise, of the Kezong Wang, um, how they fared uh, in the Joseon society. Um, The uh, the conventional wisdom, as well as uh, what people uh, commonly talk about and the kind of information one could come across easily, is that a year and a half after the 1392 dynastic change, uh, the Chosen Court carried out a brutal, uh, uh, the, well, I should I take the, I take the word that brutal back, like actually a massacre uh, that was geared toward the exterminating, uh, presumably thousands of uh, Kazon Wang who were around at the time, and the uh, the extermination effort was so thorough that uh, 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 that today uh, about twenty thousand Kazon Wang who live in South Korea. Can trade the to, uh, almost more than 90% of them trace their genealogy to send back to this one lucky survivor. And so I thought I could uh, write a book on um, how his uh, descendants fared. After uh, the storm was passed, in terms of, uh, for example, the uh, the passing the examination, uh, holding offices in the central government, their position as a local lead in the provinces, uh, possibly even their roles as as uh, uh, merchants in a more commercialized economy, and finally, um, how they dealt with uh, sort of a subversive narrative that uh, that uh, uh, that uh, certainly questioned, if not criticizing. Uh, the legitimacy of the Joseon dynasty for uh, overthrowing the Goryeo and the persecuting the Wangs.
1: Best of luck with that research too, Jean. That also sounds great, and I'll look forward to talking with you about that when it comes Thank to you. what is about. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure, and I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, too. Thank you.
1: You have been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.